Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo dasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami So the next section uh, is called The Relational Context of Dependent Origination. The essential aim of dependent origination is to illustrate the origin and cessation of suffering, dukkha. The term dukkha plays a, a pivotal role in Buddha Dhamma and appears in several key teachings, for example, the Three Characteristics and the Four Noble Truths. To understand the complete meaning of the term dukkha, one must set aside the common translation of suffering, quote-unquote, and examine the threefold classification of dukkha along with its commentarial explanations. And um, so there he gives a number of, of references where the um, uh, different suttas, different uh, teachings where dukkha is talked about and defined in various different ways. So, this is a little bit technical, but uh, hopefully we'll all be able to stay with it. So, the three different kinds of dukkha. Number one, dukkha dukkata. So, dukkha dukkha. So, the, the feeling of pain, dukkha vedana, as commonly understood. Physical suffering, for example, aches and pains, and mental suffering, for example, grief. Dis-ease, the suffering arising from encounters with undesirable and disturbing sense objects. So when we usually think of, of pain um, or, or suffering, then that's the first kind of, of dukkha that's being talked about. Dukkha, dukkata. So the, the, uh, the unsatisfactory quality of painful feeling. The second kind is called viparinama dukkata. Suffering associated with change. Suffering inherent in pleasure. So the pleasure becomes suffering or dukkha or produces suffering due to the transitoriness of pleasure. A person may feel at ease without any disturbance, but after experiencing a more pleasant form of ease, the original state of ease may feel unpleasant. It's as if suffering lies latent and manifests when pleasure fades away. The degree of suffering is proportional to the degree of pleasure that precedes it. Suffering can even arise while experiencing pleasure if a person becomes aware of the fleeting nature of that pleasure. And when pleasure ends, the sadness of separation follows in its wake. So uh, that um, uh, the, um, the verse by v- William Blake that I mentioned uh, some time ago, uh, he that binds himself to a joy doth the winged life destroy. It's a bit of an an- antique English language, but also gender-biased, but uh, that's the way William Blake wrote it. It was the 18th century. So he that binds himself to a joy doth the winged life destroy. So, so that uh, life sort of winging in a sort of joyful way uh, is destroyed by that binding. He that kisseth a joy as it flies, so kissing a joy as it flies, lives in eternity's sunrise. 
so that um, that trying to keep something that's pleasant, something that's very essence of trying to hold it and own it and, and possess it, is uh, one of the very means whereby that joyfulness is is stifled or, or obstructed. And um, also, uh, I, you know, I told the story a little while ago about uh, Venerable Ajahn Mahabur and Ajahn Man, where Ajahn Mahabur had these some. Um, as a, a new uh, disciple uh, of Ajahn Man, he had a, a lot of um, experiences of profound bliss and, and joyful ex- um, qualities of meditation, very peaceful, very bright, very blissful. And uh, when he went back to report those experiences to Ajahn Man, Ajahn Man said, well, don't bother doing that, it's a bit of a waste of time. Focus your attention instead on, with just enough uh, concentration to observe the arising and passing of the five Tundas, the five aggregates, and uh, develop insight. You know that don't don't waste your time absorbing into those uh, those blissful states. And, uh, and as I was mentioning, probably most of you will, who were here uh, remember, uh, Ajahn, uh, the young Ajahn Mahabur disagreed with his teacher, and they argued uh, long and loud, apparently. Uh, and uh, they uh, uh, he was not convinced by Ajahn Man's teaching, and went away um, to go and reabsorb into those blissful, bright states which he felt were intrinsically and absolutely good. But having argued with his teacher uh, and various other uh, obstructive aspects of his, his mind states, he couldn't um, get back to those, those beautiful, blissful states anymore. And as I mentioned the other day, he made the comment that if it had been anyone other than Ajahn Man who deprived him of those blissful states, he would have killed them. So that those beautiful, blissful, totally wholesome states became a, a, a cause for, for homicidal feelings, desire to, to, uh, to murder or destroy. So that's a pretty of an extreme example. But I think all of us have had that kind of... Um, something is so pleasant, so beautiful, so delightful, that we get stricken by trying to get back to it. Over the years, I don't know how many people have... have um, uh, on, uh, when I've been leading meditation retreats, or, or, or just people living in the monastery, having a very sort of bright, beautiful meditation, and then suffering for weeks or months or years trying to get back to that beautiful, blissful, bright, perfect state, trying to trying to re- recreate that. And uh, if you listen to the Dhamma talks of uh, of Lumpur Sumato, or you, or you read the talks of Lumpur Cha. You know, we've all we've all been there. <laughs> we we all sort of refer to that. Wow, that was so great. That was so wonderful. How can I get back there? And that's exactly what this Viparinama Dukkadara is talking about. It's that yes, those uh, those experiences are, are beautiful, blissful, pleasant. But the very way that the mind holds them uh, and takes uh, 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 sort of takes the attitude of of um, of having had them and, want, and uh, wanting to get back to them. That in the present moment we create the causes of, of dissatisfaction, and that uh, uh, and it, it can be a, a cause of, of you know very you know, profound sort of depression and sadness in, in someone's life where they have a, a peak experience or a peak moment and and then the ability the, the lack of ability to try to, to get back to that no matter how hard they try um, is uh, a source of great great sadness. I also tell the story that there's an account of Tolstoy, who was a wealthy landowner. Um, he liked to, in the, uh, he, on his biggest estates in the countryside, he used to like to go out and work with the uh, 
the, the, the poor villagers and the, the, the serfs who lived and worked on his estate. And he would go out and, uh, and harvest the, 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 the corn with them. And it, uh, he described how one summer he got into this profound state of absorption while, while they were scything the, the, um, the, the crops, the, 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 uh, the wheat or the corn. And his mind was completely focused and blissful. And he was, he, and he cut acres and acres of, of, uh, of corn. And his body was, was, was not tiring. He was, he was in this blissful, clear state. And uh, at the end of the day, he thought, well, the Russian equivalent of, wow, wow that was amazing. That was, that was wonderful. That was the most extraordinary, beautiful thing I've ever experienced in my life. And the story goes that he, he, he every, uh, every, uh, summer after that, for years and years, he cut acres and acres and acres of corn, trying to get back to that same blissful state and getting, Blistered fingers, <laughs> blistered hands, but not a lot of bliss from uh, from the absorption. So, so an example of a sort of jhana state or an absorption state arising from a physical activity, and you know trying to get back there, but uh, it's not denying that the pleasantness or the wholesomeness of those those states, but the way the mind takes hold of them uh, can be a, a cause for great difficulty. Another of the stories I often tell is of a, 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 a regular visitor here who told me how she um, took her, her, her family on a, a holiday to the Mediterranean, and they're always looking for good places to, to take the kids for the summer holidays. And they found this this little um, little village on a on an island, uh, I think in the in the, um, in the Greek islands, and it was a, a perfect little hotel, a, a very small family hotel, right near the beach, and the weather was perfect, and the food was delicious, and the the, the hotel owners were really sweet people, and it was absolutely perfect. The kids were incredibly happy, just uh, uh, really enjoyed the, the, their time. And she said, I spent the whole 10 days that we were there trying to figure out how we could book for next year, because uh, they, they, they wouldn't take a, a booking a year in advance. And so she was calculating, trying to figure out, how can we get this to happen again? She said, I ruined the whole holiday for myself, because I'm obsessing on how I could get it to happen again. So I actually missed it that time because I was so busy trying to get it the next time. <laughs> it's the, uh, what they call a brutal irony. Of, um, this is amazing, this is incredible, this is wonderful, how can I keep it? And, oh, I missed it. I was so excited about, about keeping it that it, it slipped through my fingers because it wasn't keepable. I also believe in, Jap we have got a Japanese person, I believe in Japanese as a word for the painfulness of beauty. People talk about, particularly the cherry blossoms, that uh, being so so beautiful, it's, it it hurts. I'm not sure if that's the case. You're. Can you think of a? There's <laughs> <laughs> two Japanese people here. Uh, how would you? What what word would you use for that in Japanese? I've told. I was told there's actually you have a. Japanese people describe uh, uh, cherry blossom. Uh, they uh, uh, will go. Uh, they they go very soon. So. Uh, sometimes uh, uh, it illustrates 
they illustrated of my people. Sensei Shibuka. Sensei. Ah. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's always increased the image of that. Because mm-hmm. yeah. the, the cherry blossom is, it's only at its peak for you know, a, a day or two days or something like that. Yeah, and how they... Uh, they fall. It's really like they don't hold on to anything, just yeah. let go yeah. of themselves. So I don't. I don't want to put you on the spot. So it's okay. But uh, but anyway, that uh, I think that principle of things can be so beautiful. It's painful because that beauty can't be kept. Um, nowadays, people are, with a smartphone in the pocket, they can try and get a picture or <laughs> catch a video of that perfect sunset and keep it. But, but still, that. Um, the, that effort of the mind to try and hold and to keep that, that sort of blissful, delightful quality that we, we're not noticing that in that very effort to, to keep that the dukkha is in that uh, trying to uh, trying to own, trying to possess, trying to, to, to sustain that yes feeling. Any questions on that before we continue? So that's viparinama dukkha. Viparinama dukkha. The, the, uh, the unsatisfactoriness inherent in change. And the third one is the most refined of the three. This is called Sankara Dukkata, the Dukkha of conditioned phenomena, the Dukkha of all things that arise from causes and conditions, that is, the five aggregates, the Kanda, including the path and the fruit, uh, Magga and Pala, which are technically classified as transcendent. All conditioned things are oppressed by conflicting component factors. All things arise and pass away. They are imperfect. They exist in the stream of causes and conditions which generate suffering for someone who does not understand the nature of conditionality, who, with craving, grasping and ignorance, foolishly resists this process, who does not engage with it wisely. This third kind of dukkha reveals the inherent nature of conditioned phenomena, but it also has a psychological dimension. This state of imperfection and stress prevents thorough satisfaction with conditioned phenomena and continually causes suffering for a person who relates to things with craving, grasping and ignorance. So uh, the, the very act of calling something a thing, <laughs> uh, that in a way, from the point of view of Dhamma, there aren't really any things, there are events or, or processes so you say book or person or table or, or glass or or sala or amravati and we 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 call that uh, we use words to describe a thing but a thing is a it's like a, a convenient way of talking about a set of events or a pattern of perceptions and so the very um, the very way of talking like this is a thing well, no, there aren't really any things there are, there are events and those patterns of, of experience um, of the, the material world or the experiential world coming together in a particular form. So what we call a thing, whether it's a thought or a book or a table or a, or a, 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 a building or whatever it might be, a person, uh, 
it's a, a, a way of describing a set of experiences. It's a convenient fiction, is the phrase I like to use. Um, so even saying, you know, this exists or this is a thing, that's a, a to, the, the mind is, is imparting, is giving that, that process, that flow of, of natural forms, of, of false solidity. It, it, we forget that it's an approximation. It's just a, a way of a say, of speaking um, that's out of the convenience for communication. We say the Dhamma reading will be at six o'clock. That there isn't really an absolute six o'clock, <laughs> but it tells us the time to, to gather at this particular spot for this particular kind of, uh, of an event. So uh, also the word exist. Uh, I think I was mentioning this the other day. It means to stand out. X means means out, like exit. Uh, and uh, the the uh, the the stance means to stand, or to, uh, which is standing out. So it's a, a thing exists. <laughs> uh, it's like the, the it's describing that the that say standing out from the background, or or it, it, there's a, a form that's there, that's visible, that's tangible, that, that's knowable. But that existence can only be relative, it can't be anything absolute or substantial. Um, and so that uh, the Sankara Dukkata is that it's, it's, uh, rep- it's representing the fact that as soon as the mind sees in terms of a thing or something existing, or, you know, I am, uh, just that feeling of I-ness, I am, it's giving a false solidity to that set of, of fluid processes and perceptions. So that's why, you know, with, with respect to that I am feeling, uh, which we call uh, manya, uh, manyati, the, the conceiving, the, the Buddha said, conceiving is painful. Conceiving is, a, is a, like a disease. It's like a, it's stressful. It's like a poisoned arrow. It's, uh, it's unsatisfactory. Uh, because it's, it's imparting a false solidity and independence to that, that I feeling. And that, um, so often that can seem like it's a very sort of negative or critical or, or uh, uh, there's a lot of vibhavatana, a lot of you know, negativity involved in sort of judging the world and things and people. Like, how can, you know, everything's unsatisfactory. That's a pretty sour outlook. <laughs> but it's the saying that the, the very thingness, um, that uh, the, the solidity or the substantiality that the, the mind is giving to a, a particular set of events or perceptions, that sets the mind up for, for disappointment or insecurity, alienation and such like. Um, so that it, it's um, even a word like phenomena, like, is a, yeah, that, the, this thing, that uh, there is this phenomena. Well, yes and no. Um, and that uh, uh, there are some languages in the world that don't have nouns uh, as as we use them in, in English and most European languages, but the, the the language is in form of verbs and adverbs, so that rather than a book, this is booking. There is booking. There's chairing. Or there's personing. Uh, that uh, the, it's the the world is seen and known as in a, a process of flow of, of doings and events, rather than objects and and independent people, and. Uh, so some of the, the Native American languages like Hopi and Navajo and other languages around the world are apparently formed in that way. So there's a very different framing of the, of the, 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 the nature of objects and time and people and, 
and uh, you know, events. And so it's one of those those things that uh, things <laughs> our, to know, to reflect upon how much our language and our what we think of as absolutely ordinary and natural uh, is creating a set of perceptions and an, an attitude. Uh, you know, to, to talk about people and things, and to to imagine a, a way of experiencing or, or knowing uh, the. Our, our our lives or the, the field of experience free from the sense of solid objects or separate uh, separate people or even a fixed past, present and, and future. Any questions, thoughts? I realize this is a bit of a subtle... Yes, Chris, you yeah. have... Uh, can you talk a bit more about how different other, other languages might uh, differ in their Respect to time uh, objectivity. I can. I'm not an expert, but uh, it was one of the um, uh, the. I did a degree in psychology years ago, uh, and uh, one of the interesting subjects we did was called, was psychology of language. And one of the most um, prominent people that, that we studied was a, 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 a man called Benjamin Worf, W H O R F. And uh, he started life as an insurance adjuster. You know, like he would, he was, uh, he would, he would work for an insurance company. And how he got interested in the psychology of language and became a psychologist was that, uh, if you're interested in this story, <laughs> it's kind of an interesting origin story to me, anyway. So there was an explosion at a petrol station, and uh, so he went along to, to find out well. How did this explosion happen, and, and who was responsible? And you know, would, would the insurance company pay uh, for the damage that was caused? And uh, what uh, what happened was that they, they when he went there, uh, this fellow who worked at the at the petrol uh, station who uh, said, "Well, we we'd opened up this underground tank, and, and uh, I saw that it was empty, you know, i.e., didn't have any petrol or gasoline in, in it." And so, because I saw it was empty, you know, I just flicked my cigarette butt into it, and then it exploded. Uh, and uh, and so Benjamin Wharf thought well, that's really interesting because he thought it's empty of gasoline, but he didn't think it's full of fumes. You know, the 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 vapor from the petrol was still lingering around. So his mind said it's empty, therefore uh, you can flick a, a cigarette butt into it and. It's like an, it's an empty concrete pit, um, but actually it was filled with vapor, a highly combustible vapor of, of uh, petroleum, and so woof, you know, the whole thing blew up. So he got interested. That's interesting. Just the, the way that we label things shapes the way that we see the world, and so he left the insurance field and got into psychology of language. So, uh, uh, and amongst the studies that he did, then I think he was, he did a certain amount of research into Hopi and Navajo languages, and uh, uh, in the American South Southwest, and uh, they have, um, and he saw that the, the way that they relate to time, that uh, they, that they, the way that the, the languages related to, uh, they were. Uh, many ways of talking about the present, but um, the uh, the way that the past and the future were were expressed was, was very very different than, than in English. Rather than a sort of a fixed past that is that is things that have happened or a a, uh, 
a fixed future. Again, I'm not, I, I'm not able to remember this very precisely, but it was uh, as if the, the past was always acknowledged in terms of, I'm remembering this now, or I'm imagining the future now, that, that you wouldn't sort of think of a, of a set of people and events sort of fixed that had happened before, but you, you think of it in terms of your memory. Also, um, uh, he noticed there's a vast differences in color, so that I think in, in the Navajo language, there's only one word for, for blue and green. There's one word that covers every kind of blue and green, but there's dozens of words for, for brown and yellow and gold and, and you know, because of the desert and the, and the, the colors of rocks. But uh, you know, there's one word that does all the blues and greens. And, and, uh, so that, uh, and then realizing, you know, you, you, you could only, the, 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 the individual's perception was affected by the language that they used in that respect. And then particularly with, with, uh, he realized that they didn't use nouns and pronouns in the same way, but, uh, but uh, it was a language of verbs and adverbs that there's always, it's, it's doing an action. So there's booking or rocking or there is personing or there's, you know, there's starring or, or the, 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 or, the, or shi- shining of the, of stars and such like. And that, and you could say brightly, or or or, or lightly, or heavily, um, but the, the way of talking about an individual person, or saying I, uh, or you, or she, or he, or they, it was it wasn't formed in the same way uh, in their languaging, and that the the way that people related to each other, then without those sort of fixed pronouns in the same way, it meant there was a whole different way of relating to the. So the group, the family, and the and the tribal group, and the society as a whole. Uh, so uh, there's a, uh, a a book that we we have here in the library called "Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes," about a tribe in the an Amazonian <coughs> tribe called the Piraha, and very similarly, their their, their language uh, they have no fixed colours. They, they don't, they, they can't, they, they can see and perceive varieties of, of colors, but they don't have fixed, fixed terms for particular colors, like black or white or red or blue. And they, and they, they have no way of talking about a person who's not present. So if, if, if I, if I saw you walking towards the door, I could talk about Chris once you're through the door. There isn't really a way of talking about you because you're not present. <laughs> uh, the events of the past are only to, uh, can only be referred to if you were an eyewitness. So, uh, one of the stories, because this fellow who wrote the book um, was a Christian missionary, and he was sort of sent by his missionary society to try and convert these this tribe to Christianity. And he realized he had to learn the language in order to to be able to communicate. Uh, but then, in the process of learning the language, that you know, the language changed him. Which is an interesting part of the, of the book as well, and so he tried to tell stories from the Bible, and then people would be impressed and say, "Wow, that must have been really extraordinary!" You know, uh, what did that look like? Or, or you know, or they, I think he talks about the the Battle of Jericho when the you know the walls came tumbling down. Said, wow, that must have been really loud! You know, didn't that hurt your ears? And he said, "Well, no, it wasn't there. This was this was thousands of uh, of years ago." Yeah. 
And then, and it said, it's when you, you, when people realize that you hadn't witnessed an event yourself, it wasn't like, oh, well, that's boring, or I'm not interested. It was, just, it was almost as if the words sort of break up, like they stop having any meaning. So many, many interesting aspects. So they have no number either. They have no, they're, they're disnumerate. So they, they can't think in terms of number. So their, their language is extremely sophisticated. So they have literally thousands and thousands of verb forms to express yourself. But they have in no, no fixed, they have no concept of number. So we might think of number as being some sort of primal, you know, radical, um, fixed quality of the universe, but they, 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 they can't understand number. And there's an incident that, that is described in there where uh, that uh, they were trading with a with another tribe further up the river, and they they went to to the um, uh, this missionary fellow and said, "So we think that we're being ripped off. You know, these people are cheating us. They're not honest people. And we think this. You know, you keep talking about this this stu- this stuff called number. You know, these numbers. And we think if we could learn that, we might figure out you know how they're cheating us, and we can we can work against that. So I thought, okay, great. I've got an entry point here." And he said he took the about you know, five or ten of the, the sort of smartest of the villagers, and he said he spent six months. And he said at the end of six months, none of them could count to ten. It just, it just didn't. There was no it had no meaning. There was no place for it to land. He couldn't like one stick, two sticks, three sticks. Say, well, that one's longer than that one. <laughs> well, this one's got knobs on, and that one's smooth. You know. But they couldn't. That the mind couldn't form number, and so that. Um, but he said there were no. It wasn't in the slightest the case that they were not intelligent or not sort of caring or 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 observant. You know, very. But they didn't need number, and they, so they had no way of forming them. Similarly, um, their relationship to uh, to safety was very different. That he describes this incident where he was he was chatting with this uh, one woman in the village and had a, a little child with her who was like one and a half two years old, and the child was playing with this machete, and he was kept feeling like oh dear you know the kid's going to you know, injure herself and and uh, at a certain point the, the 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 little the little girl kind of dropped the machete and uh, and he thought oh you know oh, okay now, now she's safe and then the mother picked it up and gave it to her again. <laughs> So he he was trying to to not intervene or or, or or intrude, but he just burst out and said, "Yeah." And by this time, he'd learned their language; he could speak with them quite freely. He said, "Why why why are you giving her the knife? Aren't, aren't you scared that she's going to cut herself?" And the mother looked at him like, "What do you mean?" Well, you know, if she aren't you scared she's going to injure herself? No, you, that uh, you know you, sh- you should protect her. And she said, "Well." It's because I love her that I give her the knife. What do you mean? Well, how's she going to learn that it's that the edge is sharp unless she unless she holds it and and, and plays with it? You know, that's how she'll find out. No. <laughs> so it was a, a the these kind of um, interesting exchanges that were the sense of the the world view and and they couldn't believe how these these the, this uh, American family. They would sleep for hours, like six or eight hours, completely unconscious, 
That's why the book's called Don't Sleep, There Are Snakes, is because it's dangerous living in their environment. It's filled with all kinds of poisonous creatures. So they, 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 they doze, they, they nap, and they, they sleep very, very lightly because <laughs> you need to be awake, otherwise dangerous things can happen while you're, if you're unconscious. So that the, uh, the, the way that the world is, is formed is, uh, it's radically different. So I, I, I'm not an anthropologist or a psychologist, but I do find it, it uh, illuminating to read those kind of accounts because it shows how, so something like number, you know, you've got you know, mathematicians and you know, the, the, the numbers you need for engineering calculations and such like that, put up buildings and, and do stuff. Uh, you think, well, that's, that's, a, that's a fixed absolute quality, but is it? <laughs> and time uh, or color, Say this is blue, and you know, it's red. This is white. That's black. But, well, is it? Yeah. And that that flexibility around perception and how the, the mind is is forming the world in particular ways, and so that uh, that uh, that kind of uh, recognizing of the conditioning that is here, then then it helps to, the mind to not be creating that. The sankara, the causes of sankara dukkata, that it, that it, this is a conditioned way of forming a particular world. Uh, the world, it's not the world. It's just this mind's way of representing things, and that. So I find those very sort of refreshing and illuminating. Those kind of accounts and uh, how uh, we um, you know, we we assume things like object. Uh, yeah, object permanence. You know, when uh, that when you can't see an object that is still there, it's like, are you sure? <laughs> Time, individuality, color, uh, and uh, people, and that we uh, we don't realize how much the mind is is making. It's literally sunk, you know, sankata. It's conditioned. It's it's formed. It's compounded. The mind is making this version of the world, and then taking it to be true and real. So reflecting on these kind of things and the ways that different human groups or or even your children uh, you know, before they they can speak or they, or different nationalities having different words for different things you know that some countries they have you know, very particular words for uh, experiences that they uh, that are sort of unique to their in their their culture that, you know don't exist in other cultures and that. Uh, it's, it, it gives us a perspective on the way the mind is forming the world. Like in that, in that, the, with the Piraha, they have five different la- forms of language that they use. Uh, one is the, the men's hunting language, which it sounds like birds, bird song and insect noise. They talk to each other when they're, they're, uh, they're hunting in the, in the forest. Um, there's the, the ordinary everyday language of people uh, in the in the village. There's the calling across the river language. <laughs> like in 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 Europe, certain uh, uh, they have whistling languages in some of the the um, the, in the in the Mediterranean. And people communicate over long distances by whistling or yodeling in uh, in Switzerland, uh, Austria, and so on. You can. It's a way of communicating across long distances. And they have, um, uh, I think there's the, so there's the regular village language. There's the, um, I think there's the sort of village um, 
discussion language <laughs> for, for uh, coming to agreements of things. There's the and then there's a mother to the child language, which doesn't use consonants or vowels at all. It's a kind of humming language, uh, but it, it's a language. And so uh, again, the, this this fellow um, uh, noticed that that the, and he thought it was just they, they were just singing. And, uh, uh, or they were just sort of humming, uh, just to make a noise. And then he realized, oh no, there's actually, there's meaning being conveyed in that humming between the mother and the child. That uh, it doesn't have consonants or vowels, it's just a, a sort of vocal tone that's used, but it, it's still carrying meaning. Like a mother, you know, the, the, a little child might, uh, uh, he was just, I think one of the descriptions was, they uh, they had a a book with pictures of of, of fish and, and whales and dolphins and things and this this child really liked the pictures of the these big fishes and, and such like and uh, and uh, uh, he uh, he uh, when he was asking the, the the mother you know what, what uh, when he, he figured out this was a language they were using said uh, oh, I'm uh, I'm telling the story about the about the big fish in the in the in her in the her favorite book, and so I'm just making up a a story about the big fish in this humming language. <laughs> and there's no way of writing. Hopefully, yeah. I could I could I could think of. So, uh, I, but I do feel these are useful things to reflect upon because we we assume that. Our version of the world is the world, and we're not aware of how our conditioning, our language, our education, our uh, the environment, how that's affecting uh, and contributes to the 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 way the mind frames things. And when there is that recognition, oh, this is just the mind's version of the world. You know, that thinks in terms of time and individuality and and uh, ownership. Uh, of things rather than than events and, and this sort of more fluid way of relating, then there's a, a much um, a greater quality of spaciousness and adaptability, making space for our own moods and experiences, and, and also the 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 natures of our other beings, other people, and other events around us. So a long response to your question. Hopefully. Oh, thank you. <laughs> So, the meaning of this third kind of dukkha is thus all-inclusive. It corresponds with the meaning of dukkha in the three characteristics. All conditioned things are dukkha, quote-unquote. The pressure and instability inherent in things may lead to the dukkha of the Four Noble Truths, whereby craving, grasping and ignorance come to fruition as suffering, and whereby the five aggregates of nature develop into the five aggregates of clinging of human beings, so that the grasping of the, the, the bundles of uh, fuel. In this context, one can include the three kinds of feeling, Vedana, pleasure, sukha, pain, dukkha, and neutral feeling, upekha, also known as adukamasukha, neither, neither pleasant nor painful. Painful feeling, dukkha Vedana, is part of the first kind of dukkha, dukkha dukkata. Pleasant feeling, Sukhavedana, is introduced in the second factor of Viparinama Dukkata. Although neutral feeling, or equanimity, escapes from the first two factors, 
it's included in the final factor of Sankara Dukkata. Even equanimity is ephemeral, transient, and subject to causes and conditions. If one is enchanted by equanimity and wishes to indulge in it, one cannot escape the dukkha of conditioned phenomena. The commentaries elaborate by stating that neutral feeling, upeka vedana, along with all other formations in the three planes of existence, the te bhumaka, are sankara dukkata, as they are oppressed by arising and dissolution. In sum, all three kinds of feeling are incorporated in these three kinds of dukkha. The teaching of dependent origination reveals how dynamics inherent in nature develop into human problems as a consequence of ignorance, craving and clinging. At the same time, these natural dynamics reveal how the interrelatedness of phenomena takes the form of a stream. Various aspects of this stream may be distinguished. Conditioned phenomena are interrelated. They exist dependent on other conditioned phenomena. They are inconstant, not remaining the same even for an instant. They are not autonomous. They have no true self and they have no first cause. <coughs> Seen from another angle, the way in which phenomena manifest in the world as appearing, growing and declining reveals their fluid nature. This fluid nature exists because things are made up of interrelated components. The stream of phenomena flows on because all of its components are unstable, inconstant, and without true substance. The particular features of interdependent processes both point to the impossibility of a first cause and also allow for the manifestation of distinct fluid entities. So this is a, a theme that he, he develops, is, uh, and it also is uh, within certain philosophical traditions that uh, life and the, the and the mind and the experiential world is is seen as a, a, a process or set of processes. And um, one of the prominent philosophers from the 20th century, Alfred North Whitehead, wrote a, uh, a, a, a I found a quite impenetrable book called Process and Reality, which is highly regarded, but I would say extremely difficult to read. Like you, it's one of those ones you have to read every sentence or two or three times or three or four times to try and, at least I found, to get a sense of what he's trying to say. But it is referred to, process and reality is referred to by a lot of, of um, people who are quite influential uh, thinkers and writers in the current age and um, who also relate um, to uh, or, or derive their, their understanding from, from uh, Buddhist philosophy as well. And so I feel that that process-oriented philosophy uh, in, from the Western angle is very closely related to this, the, 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 the Buddhist view of, uh, of uh, say, the, um, seeing things in terms of uh, anicca, dukkha, anatta. And so uh, it's, you, I, I would say, if you, there are people who've read Alfred North Whitehead <laughs> and then explained it for the uh, sort of thing you can look up on Wikipedia and that. Uh, can I explain for the ordinary human what the, what is meant by this? Uh, and I, I, but I do feel it's it's a very insightful and helpful approach, and um, that sense of the 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 fluid and insubstantial uh, nature of the, the way life works and the way experience operates. And there's a uh, say a way through uh, the real appreciation of that moment by moment. 
not just on an intellectual level, but appreciating that the the quality of process, the 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 process of experiencing. If the mind focuses on that, then that's a, there's a natural liberating quality. So one of the ways that uh, I find it's helpful to talk about vipassana meditation, insight meditation is it's a conscious letting go of the content of experience to know the process of experiencing. So that rather than, than uh, saying, oh, this is a book, this is seeing a book, um, then it's letting go of the, 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 the content, the particular objects, you know, the, the, the feeling of the page or the, you know, the white against the blue of the carpet, to say, this is, this is a, in a state of change. It doesn't matter whether it's white or blue or... Uh, or what it feels like, is it changing? It's letting go of the content to look at the process of experiencing. The seeing is arising and passing. Feeling is arising and passing. Hearing is arising and passing. So it's like a, a letting go of the, of the content to notice and appreciate the, the, f- the process of experiencing. And in that, that uh, that's really the, the, the essence of the work of insight meditation. And then in that, appreciation of the, the flow of experience, not dwelling on the content, then uh, that the insight, the, the vipassana, the, the, the liberating quality of that is a, comes with a, a change of heart and that the, the mind is not so focused on um, the content, the liking, disliking, interested, not interested, but that very quality of knowing the nature of, of, of experience and it, it's um, it's inherent qualities of anicca, dukkha, anatta. There's a, a spaciousness, a, a clarity, a peacefulness that comes with that. If things were to truly possess a self, quote unquote, they would be stable. If things were stable, even for a moment, they would, by definition, not be mutually dependent, and there would be no fluid entities. But without a stream of interdependent phenomena, Nature would not exist in the way that it does. A self or a fixed substance within phenomena would render true causal interactions impossible. Because all things are impermanent, inconstant, subject to decay, insubstantial and interconnected. There's a stream of conditions manifesting as distinct natural phenomena. The Pali term for impermanence and instability is anicchata. Uh, so anicca uh, literally means uh, in, uh, it means changing. Uh, it's like a, it's a it's an adjective, and the anicca the ta at the end is ness. So changing ness, um, so that uh, the the quality of of, uh, of something in a state of change. So dukkata is uh, unsatisfactoriness, uh, and anatta is uh, not selfness. Uh, sorry, anatata, excuse me. Anatata is a not selfness. So the Pali term for impermanence and instability is anicchata. The term for oppression through birth and decay, for inherent stress, conflict and imperfection is dukkata. The term for selflessness or insubstantiality, the absence of any internal or external essence or agent that dictates things according to desire is anatata. The teaching of dependent origination reveals these three characteristics and describes the interrelated sequence of phenomena. So, is that uh, that 
uh, clear enough? Please do ask questions if you have. So he's saying, if there was anything, anything that was genuinely stable uh, and or had a, an, an, a, an essence that um, that absolutely existed, then um, uh, nature would not exist in the way that it does. If there was one permanent thing, then the whole of nature would not operate the the way that it, it does. It's because every aspect of, of the natural world, mental and physical, um, is in a state of, of change and fluidity, then it works in the way that it does. If things were stable, even for a moment, they would, by definition, not be mutually dependent. This is also the kind of thing any of you who have tried to read, uh, like Alfred North Whitehead is a bit impenetrable, Nagarjuna is maybe even more impenetrable. <laughs> if any of you have tried to read Nagarjuna, sometimes it uh, can be a bit... Uh, hard to understand, but I feel that Venerable Paiuto explains these things very, very, in a much more approachable and understandable way. But he's saying if there was one stable thing, if anything was stable, had a permanent, independent existence, then uh, you know nature could not, would not operate in the, the way that it does. And so um, maybe that's not an immediately obvious, <laughs> but uh, it's a sort of thing like. Oh, he makes a very strong statement there. That, is that so? Is there anything that, does, that doesn't change? Uh, uh, how, you know, why, why would that be? Why would that throw everything off? Hmm. So if it's not immediately apparent, it's, I'd say it's useful to take these kind of principles and sit on them and reflect on them and explore them. Any questions, thoughts on that? Yes. Um, for the chain of dependent origination, uh, would there need to have been a first point where, what would have been the first starting point of that sort of chain? Well, that's one of the things that uh, uh, in the, in the uh, in both in, in his commentary and in the readings I was giving yesterday, there's no, the Buddha said over and over and over again, that no first cause is describable. That, you, the, that the idea of a first cause is that I'd say a, a wrong understanding. That there isn't, you can't speak meaningfully in terms of a first cause. No first cause is describable. Um, so that because our, our, our minds tend to think in terms of, of time and causality as sort of fixed, fixed realities. Um, but again, it's the sort of thing that. Uh, uh, the um, it's useful to to sit on and think. Hmm, no first cause. How does that? How can that be? Or how does that work? Uh, and to uh, to explore that, to to reflect on that. There's a whole chapter in the, the connected discourses called "With No Discoverable Beginning." Um, and it's, if you want to look in the connected discourses, it's chapter fifteen, section fifteen, and. Uh, uh, so the, the you know the Buddha says when some when some of the monks ask so you know, how uh, uh, how uh, uh, how much time uh, has passed since things began and the the Buddha said you know that you, you can't calculate that, that you know time doesn't have a, a mean the amount of time doesn't have any meaning and he said if you have four people who had uh, uh, could recollect a hundred thousand eons uh, every day. And for a hundred years, each of those four people recollected 
you know, a hundred thousand eons every single day, you know, back and back and back and back and back. It's still, yeah, after a hundred years, you, you know, you couldn't get to the beginning of time. So I, I did the, uh, after the re- yesterday's reading, I did the calculation on that. So it's 14, just out of my own curiosity, 14 billion, 600 million eons. And that still doesn't go back to a beginning. <laughs> if you're also interested in, in vast reach, reaches of time and the process of Nietzsche, there's a book uh, called The End of Everything by a, a very good science writer who's very, <laughs> very readable. Uh, not to give Alfred North Whitehead a bad time. But, uh, it's called Katie Mack. It's called The End of Everything. And she uh, she's a cosmologist. And so in this book, she talks about these vast reaches of, of time off into the future. She, the way she speaks about the, the universe is in terms of not a, a, an expansion and contraction model, but, uh, but more in the terms of, of uh, the universe continually expanding forever. And, and she quite happily talks in terms of trillions and trillions and trillions of years into the future. So where the, uh, the universe has expanded um, to such a point where you, matter breaks down and even so protons and electrons also dissolve into energy and the energy dissolves into it disperses into the, the vast uh, emptiness uh, so it, it's uh, it's marvelously mind-boggling if you like science writing and the, the, these uh, <clears throat> and uh, one of the interesting comments um, that uh, somebody asked so how would anybody, you know, this far off into the future, you know, how would any, any, any being, how would any observer be able to, uh, sort of perceive or know any of that? And then someone that she quotes says, well, it could be that some entity in that era of the, the universe's evolution, uh, that a single thought, a single thought form might take trillions of our years to take shape. Okay. Ooh, what's that happening over there? Over trillions of years. So that we're about 13.8 billion years from the last Big Bang. <laughs> so trillions of years is, is like thousands and thousands of um, times longer than that. But yeah, a single thought, yeah, again, I, I kind of like that. Just uh, a single thought form taking trillions of years to arise and take shape. Oh, what's that over there? A trillion years goes by. Just in there. What's that over there? Thought. Maybe that's a distraction. But uh, yes, Eleonora. Isn't there something similar also in Buddhist cosmology that there is some universe of beings eons pass in a very short time? Oh yeah. Yeah, it's exactly the the description for Brahma gods. They have a lifespan of about twenty thousand eons, or forty thousand, or eighty thousand eons, and so uh, it's one of the reasons why Brahma Sahampati is so unique. Because for a Brahma god, it's like, oh, what's that? Oh, it's a Buddha. Oh, he's gone. Oh well, there'll be another one along in a minute. Blink, yeah. <laughs> and a, a Buddha arises. A human life passes by, and then they're gone. Oh, oh well. So the Brahma Sahampati uh, noticing the, the the Buddha appearing and then intervening to encourage the Buddha to teach. Yeah, so that the subjective experience of time for a, for a Brahma deity is their lifespans, you know, 20, 30, 50,000, 80,000 eons. Let's say um, just the, a human life is not even a finger snap.
So, to continue. The process of dependent origination applies to both material things, rupa-dhamma, and to immaterial things, nama-dhamma, to both the the material world and to human life, which is comprised of both physical and mental attributes. This process manifests as particular laws of nature, namely, so this is the the five niyamas, or the five laws of nature, and um, he puts them in a different order to the way that I've um, known them, but... um, uh, I would say absolutely valid in the same way. So the first one is Dhamma Niyama, the general law of cause and effect. The second is Utu Niyama, the laws of the material world, physical laws. So, so um, uh, uh, you can say the laws of physics and chemistry. Utu literally means the weather. So Utu Niyama, the laws of physics and chemistry. Bija Niyama, the laws governing living things, including genetics, biological laws. So bija means a seed, so bija niyama. Then the fourth one, jitta niyama, laws governing the workings of the mind, psychological laws like how we remember, how we imagine, um, the, the um, use of, uh, of language, the processing of uh, sense perceptions and so on. And then the fifth one, kama niyama, the law of karma, intentional action, or karmic laws, which determines human well-being and is directly linked to ethics. And the little footnote here on on karma, Pali Kamma, Sanskrit Karma. There are many misunderstandings of the Buddhist concept of karma. As a case in point, note the first two definitions of karma in Collins' Concise Dictionary, 4th edition, 1999. In Hinduism and Buddhism, the principle of retributive justice determining a person's state of life and state of his reincarnations as the effect of his past deeds. Then second definition, destiny or fate. Uh, Hopefully this text, this book, will demonstrate and explain just how remote these definitions are from the original Buddhist connotations. So, kama literally means action, or karma in Sanskrit, kama in Pali, just means action. Uh, And then, the result of that action is vipaka, also known as resultant karma. So uh, when when we use the word karma or karma, often it's a shorthand for karma vipaka, action and its results. So of all these, th- those five, um, dhamma-niyama, uttaniyama, bijaniyama, jitaniyama, karma-niyama, then these are uh, the different influences, the different laws that govern our lives, what we experience moment by moment, that we're, we're subject to the laws of cause and effect, of physics and chemistry, biology, the, the, the laws of, of psychology, the way the mind works, and, and the, the laws of, of action and its results, the choices that we've made and the effects of those, those choices. So that, uh, but of those five, only Kamaniyama is involving personal action, all the others we experience the results of the force of gravity or the way that Perception works, hearing sound or seeing color, and, and uh, the ability to remember, and so and breathing. You know, the, so uh, dhamma-niyama, uttaniyama, bijaniyama, jitaniyama. That we're we are affected by all of those laws all the time, but none of them are personal. None of them are, uh, uh, say, individual creations. The only thing that relates to uh, uh, us as uh, in terms of personal choice and the um, 
uh, are the the, and, and thereby is the focus of the Buddha's teaching is kamaniyama. So that's where we can make a difference in our lives is the the choices that we make moment by moment. Yeah. Yes. Uh, the choices we make uh, uh, is also from some of the independent origination. So what determines the different choices? Uh, a lot of things. <laughs> the uh, uh, really the the conditioning of the mind in terms of like and dislike, uh, how awake the mind, how much mindfulness there is or isn't. Um, the um, the conditioning of the mind in terms of of relating to physical comfort. Um, Social situations, there's a vast array of different things that influence choices. But the, the, the Buddha's teaching focuses upon the fact that the more mindfulness there is, the more there is mindfulness and wisdom, then the, the, the more that the mind is able to recognize what uh, uh, is a, a beneficial action or speech in relationship to the situation and what's going to be harmful. So that the, the, the more mindfulness and wisdom or mindfulness and, and uh, full awareness there is, then the, the potential of each moment, uh, the, the conditions that have come together out of Dhammaniyama, Uttaniyama, Bijaniyama, the, or the different things that, that contribute to this moment, then the, the, the choices that can be made based on those different influences will be made to lead towards what is beneficial, what's liberating, what, what's helpful. And the, the, the degree to which there's a lack of mindfulness, a lack of, of, of wisdom and attunement to the time, the place, the situation, then the more the choices will be driven by fear or desire or aversion or habit or, or um, the, the, the kind of uh, reflex uh, reactivity uh, to, to the, the situation. So there's uh, <clears throat> there's a, a, a kind of an incalculable number of influences in, in detail operating in each moment, but the the Buddha's teaching points us to the fact that you know every moment is preconditioned by everything that's come before. You know what we experience now in this moment at two minutes past seven in the evening on a Tuesday, fifteenth of March. You know, that what we experience now is the, is the coming together of all those past influences and those past conditions. But what we do at this moment is, um, is influenced by personal choice, the, the common that's created. Yeah. And that this is where we can make a difference. So we can't control everything that's happened in the past, but uh, what's happened in the past and the influences of the natural world have come together to make this moment exactly like this for each of us. So in this moment, then what what does this mind do? What does this this individual uh, sort of set of processes? Uh, how does it work with the, the the conditions of the present moment? So that the the teaching is then the to uh, the encouragement to be as fully awake to the conditions of the present as they are, and to whatever degree it's possible to uh, to use the conditions of the present to bring about 
what is beneficial for ourselves and, and others. There's different degree of awareness. In terms of the total, we say I'm aware of this and that. But the kind of awareness doesn't change our actual behavior or concept or, or choices. It can do. It can, yes, yes, it can be. <laughs> so that's what I'm saying. Like, the, uh, how do we deepen that kind of awareness apart from daily meditation? <laughs> Even for daily meditation, I still find like uh, what is different, like conditioned in different ways. So, yeah, I think I'm asking for instant noodles for, <laughs> <laughs> for a shortcut. Yeah. A shortcut. Well, <laughs> the well the. That, like, like I was saying earlier, just using that, not being complacent, in a sense, uh, developing a sense of urgency, like being interested in how uh, to to remember, rather than just walking across the sala to get a, uh, a cup of tea, to as you're walking, to recognize the mind is creating this perception of the sala, it's creating the perception of this body walking, uh, and there's this thought, I'm going for a cup of tea, that's uh, and it, uh, we can be half awake as we're feeling the carpet under our feet as we walk, but there can be also that more acute recognition of oh, the mind is forming this, it's labeling it in these particular ways. Uh, will I, uh, will I be still be alive when the, the body will, will the body get to the server? You know, <laughs> am I assuming that, that there will be water in the urn or that I'll still be breathing by the time you know, three seconds have passed? So there's all kinds of ways that the mind can say, uh, reflect upon its experience of the present. Um, and so that complacency, taking things for granted, just running on automatic, um, that's a kind of mindfulness we can kind of be aware of, but there's also the, the level of mindfulness that's far more, uh, say, complete or, or, or uh, comprehensive in you know, recognizing in this moment, the the mind is creating the world of sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, thought, uh, language, concept. It's creating it in this way. It has exactly this pattern. This is a mental event. So the more that we, and again, if if you uh, reading Lumpur Cha's teachings, Lumpur Sumedho's teachings, the that. And there's the encouragement for that quality of reflection, investigation, to be looking at the attitudes the mind has, what we take for granted, and exploring that. So that's the shortcut, is work harder. You know? <laughs> so don't, uh, it's an encouragement for from, from myself as well as everybody else. Just don't be, don't be complacent. You know? We can easily coast through life just getting by by habit and... and and just doing things in a familiar way, or <laughs> we can you know, actively engage and investigate and, and use that reflective ability to, to challenge, to, to question our assumptions. Well, like that's why I like to, to to reflect on those people like the Piraha and the languages of the Navajo and Hopi and such like, and, or um, that just to see that you know, the world can be seen in a completely different way. 
the way this mind frames things and labels things, that's just one version. This isn't the whole story. And that, in a sense, that's developing the anicca sanya, the perception of, of change or impermanence, fluidity, uh, perceiving you know this this body, this life, the feeling of identity as a, as a process, and actively engaging and sort of revisioning this this life, this experience in that in these ways, and then there that is that, that very revisioning that's what helps to change the attitude that, that enables the mind to, to know this this life this flow of experience in a very very different way okay well it's now nearly 10 past seven so let's leave it there for today um, so yeah we'll just leave it at the end of the niyamas and uh, and carry on. Let's see. Tomorrow is yeah, the, the moon day is on the seventeenth, isn't it? So, so we'll have another reading to, uh, tomorrow. We can finish there for today. <laughs> Sadhu 